I really felt like I was alone. I didn't feel like there was anyone I could tell. And of course, this man was beloved in this church. He was treated like a rock star. So who was I going to be the one to expose him and expose myself? Because people saw me as this sweet Christian girl who was doing all these wonderful things in the church. And I thought, I don't want them to know this about me either. And so keeping the secret was a way of surviving. Hey, everyone, it's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. And I am continuing a series called Bearing Witness. I love talking about sexy, fun stuff. I love ecstatic dance and massage and techniques for having better orgasms. I love all that stuff. But you know that for a lot of people, getting to that thing is a far cry because it's sitting on top of gateways that are frozen off due to prior traumas. And those traumas are not just because there was someone in their family system who hurt them. Those traumas are often inflicted by churches and religious organizations and various belief systems in, in of submission in the socioeconomic culture that have to be unwound before we can have full pleasure in our body. This week's episode is a continuation of last week. Last week, I did an intro to religion and trauma on women. And this particular episode is a highly personal narrative from Sandy Phillips Kirkham, who was raised in the Church of Christ and was targeted and groomed by her youth pastor, who then had a sexual relationship with her for five years. And when she came out to talk about it and to seek freedom from that situation, she was the one who was blamed and excommunicated, and he was reassigned to another church, a standard cronyism example from religion. This is not a one-off story. She represents millions of people who have been so treated. And the question I have, because I love spiritual life so much, I love the mystic Christ and the Magdalene, I, I love the sense of, of connecting to the spirits of nature, is how do we retain what is sacred and what is good about getting together to bow down and be in joy and be in service while not having it overlaid with the kind of abuses that are so common when religion denies the validity of our animal nature, our sexuality, our sensuality, the beauty of our bodies, how good it feels to dance. Last week, I talked about how it wasn't that religion didn't want magic, the magic of these powerful experiences of embodiment. It's that they wanted to control them. So here we are facing a story that is highly personal, but also something that allows us to extract what it means to uh, be targeted, be groomed, and then um, how we can do pattern recognition across the templated responses that religious organizations have and all the usual sneaky ways they try to get out of being accountable by listening to this uh, testimony of author Sandy Phillips Kirkham on what happened to her. Today, we're talking a little bit about religious trauma. And my guest is Sandy Phillips Kirkham, which ironically, Kirkham means church home. It does. Etymologically. So yes, we're all looking for home. Your your topic, you wrote a book that's a very personal account about clergy abuse, which we're going to get into. Um, but your topic falls into a much broader category of religious trauma, religious abuse in multiple ways. So can you can you speak to the category in which your personal experience falls? Well, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor at age 16, um, and it lasted for five years. 
And what I had discovered is once his actions were discovered, the church uh, rallied around him. And I was really cast aside. When he was caught, he was called in by the elders. He gave his narrative of what had happened. He lied about how long it had been going on. Certainly he was, said he was sorry. He asked for forgiveness. And they decided that they would move him to the next church. He was given a going away party and was moved to the next church. Shortly after that, I was called in by the elders and I was told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church and I was devastated. I, I loved that church. It was all the, the only church I'd ever known. I had grown up there and to be told that I wasn't fit to worship there shattered everything I thought that I knew about church. So that was the beginning of, of, of what I would say was my understanding of how churches would react to victims. And of course, my abuser told me all along that no one was going to believe me and that if I were to ever tell anyone, I would be blamed. And, and that's exactly what happened. I would say there was a handful of people in the church who did support me, but the leadership found it to be my fault and that it was easier to blame me and move him to the next church, which again, he committed sexual misconduct in that church. So fast forward, I spent 27 years silent. I didn't tell anyone about it. My husband never knew. My close friends, family never knew. And there was a trigger that sent me over the edge that finally I had to know that I had to deal with my past. And when I did that, one of the things that I felt necessary for my healing and to move on was I wanted to confront him. Now, this was 27 years later, so I had no idea where he was, even if he, were, he was alive. He was 13 years older than I was he, and was married and two children at the time. And so he was quite a bit older. I was 49 at the time and I found uh, a private investigator who then found him ministering in a church in Alabama and I confronted him. And my expectation would be that once his current church would learn of what he had done and his history of sexual misconduct, that they would remove him, that this would be the, the, the logical thing you would do. Now, this is 27 years later. So times had changed. There was, you know, we were more aware of sexual abuse that occurred in the church. Not only was I just disappointed, I discovered that I was again going to be blamed. I was told that if I were to come forward with this information, I would be hurting the church. I would be responsible for the loss of people's spiritual lives, that I would, could not carry the guilt that coming forward would cause me. I wasn't deterred. I did write 11 of his elders. No one in his church was aware of his past. No one. Even the elders of the church were not aware. So I wrote 11 letters to each elder. I got no response back. Not one responded. They totally ignored me. So then I went to the president of the denomination, said I needed to speak to them about what I saw as, to me, it was like they were taking risk with this man being in the church. He, he clearly demonstrated by his behavior over and over that he had issues in this area and he did not belong in the ministry. Again, I was told, well, this happened 27 years ago. We believe people change and there's nothing that we're going to do about it. So that's how I have seen the church respond. It is a cover up most times. It's a fear that they're going to hurt the reputation of the church. But more than that, I think it comes down to money. I think it comes down to protecting someone that they think is wonderful. Uh, my abuser was very charismatic. He brought a lot of people into the church. Everyone loved him. He was treated like a rock star. So I kind of knew that when I 
confronted him, his supervisor was going to see him that way. But I, I really believed in my heart that if I could convey to him the damage that is done by clergy abuse and the damage that it had done to my spiritual life, that being a Christian man and being a man who would want to do the right thing would do the right thing. And I was failed on every, every account. It, it was an epic failure on every aspect where I tried to warn the church that this man should not be in ministry. Well, you were asking for accountability uh, from people who don't feel like they need to be accountable. I mean, it's not unique to your denomination. Do you speak to like which church it was? You don't talk about which church? My abuse happened in the Church of Christ Christian Church. He was then removed from that denomination and went to the Disciples of Christ, which is a break off of the Christian Church Christ. And so they're they're very similar um, to the Baptists in the sense that they're independent churches. They don't have a hierarchy necessarily. They do have boards and things. So each church is permitted to hire and fire pastors as they see fit. So it's so it's very easy for them to pass abusers along because there's no one they need to report to. That's an evangelical denomination, yeah? Yes, yes. I mean, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation because the evangelical movement has also been behind this purity culture. Yes. And there's there seems to be some deep tie between purity culture, shaming girls for engaging in sexuality, shaming men for having sexual desires that forces it underground. And I will tell you, my abuser... You know, the night that he had sex with me, he made it very clear, you know, I could never tell anyone that no one's going to believe me and that because I was no longer a virgin, no one else would want me. And, you know, being raised in that environment, I knew that, you know, the virginity was so something special. You were just saved for your spouse and and uh, is a gift kind of thing. And so I had given that gift away to this man. That's how I saw it. And, and certainly once I had, he had crossed that boundary of having sex with me, I felt I needed to be committed to him, that I had broken the sin of all sins. And once I had consented, and not really consented, but somewhat in my own mind thought I consented to sex because I didn't say no, then I was committed to him. Regardless of the fact that he was married with two children, he convinced me this was God's will, uh, you know, which is very characteristic of these men um, in clergy abuse. They use scripture and they twist it to meet their needs. Uh, he was constantly telling me he was like David in the Bible and that he had faults and that God worked through him through his faults. These are the tools, some of the tools that they will use with someone who has already been set up to believe in their pastors and to trust them and to trust what they say. So when they give this false narrative, it's, it's, it's a little bit easier for that person to accept it because he is the pastor. I'm just imagining being 16, like trying to put myself back at that time in my own life. And I imagine our listeners are as well. You are a little moony mm -hmm. at this stage. Anyway, you're a little in this like ro romantic yes. haze. You're trying to figure out your body. You're trying to figure out the rules of the world. And so that that is a very vulnerable time. And you also, you know, one of the things he kept saying to me over, you want to believe that you're grown up. And so, you know, he would say to me over and over, I need to know you're mature enough to handle this. And I want you to know that, you know, you're a special woman now. And that, that and so he kept playing on that part of it too. You know, you need to show the maturity that you can, handle. And you know, if you're 16, 17 years old, you're trying to, well, I want to be mature. And, and keep in mind, you know, there was a process before he got me to that point of having sex with me. There was the grooming, there was manipulation, there was gaslighting, 
love bombing, all these things that he methodically and slowly over time sucked me into a point that I couldn't see what was happening to me. And so when that moment he had sex with me, I, I was so taken aback that I, I didn't know what to do. I, I actually froze. I simply froze. And again, once he crossed that boundary, I felt committed to him. I mean, there were times I tried to get out of the relationship and he would, he would respond in one of two ways. One, he would tell me how much he loved me, he cared for me, how much he needed me in the ministry. He played the guilt trip for me. Or he would become violent, push me up against the wall, become very angry and say words to me like, you could never leave me. You can't leave me. No one else is going to want you. You're not a virgin anymore. I'm the only one that knows how to love you. That's the gaslighting. You know, and when you're traumatized, your brain is also traumatized to a point you can't think clearly and you don't see the reality of what's happening around you because they don't want you to see the reality. I really felt like I was alone. I didn't feel like there was anyone I could tell. And of course, this man was beloved in this church. He was treated like a rock star. So who was I going to be the one to expose him and expose myself? Because people saw me as this sweet Christian girl who was doing all these wonderful things in the church. And I thought, I don't want them to know this about me either. And so keeping the secret was a way of surviving. It was a way of surviving. I want to come back to some of those grooming tactics in a minute. But first, let's just be with this young part of you that wanted to be loved, wanted to be included, and was really responding to this masterful seduction, the seduction done in the name of the highest power. That's a, that's a, that's a oof, hard to take. So if there's someone listening out there who's got a daughter or who's got um, even a young man, I guess, because that's often sexual abuse is often homosexual sexual abuse. What does grooming look like? What should they watch out for? Well, grooming is to establish a false trust. It's to establish an emotional connection with the victim. So they will look for people who are vulnerable, who who have a, a need in their life, and then they pretend to fill that need only then to keep pushing boundaries so that the person becomes almost dependent upon this person because they're helping them, where they pretend to be helping them and they see this person as a hero in their life. And so what happens is they begin to accept behavior and actions in this particular person that they wouldn't accept from someone else. That's the grooming process. And it's very slow and it's very methodical. And these perpetrators take their time. So they will look for maybe for someone who's been abused before. They will look for someone who's just simply insecure, like a 16-year-old girl who's, who's wide-eyed and naive. Um, that was my vulnerability. My parents were divorced. Uh, I didn't see my dad a lot during my high school years. So I looked at him as a father figure and he saw that and he knew that. He knew that he could fill that need. And so he could do things with me and say things to me that I would find inappropriate with other people. The manipulation is the undue influence of a, over another person simply to be able to get to control them. They look for ways to manipulate situations so that that person is under their control to a point that they can do it again and say things. Gaslighting um, for me was, was the one that kept me in the relationship. That is where the abuser distorts the reality of the situation for the victim. They begin to say things and do things that make the victim feel like they can't trust their own judgment and see the reality as it is. So the perpetrators will start by saying, you know, I would never hurt you. And you know, I love you, even though the victim may think 
yeah, but I don't think this is what love is. Or, But yes, I, I feel hurt by him because he did this to me, but he's telling me he loves me and he's telling me he cares for me. Then they move to a stage of making the victim feel like they can't trust their own judgment. You know, you're not smart enough to make this decision on your own. He was always telling me I wasn't very smart and that I, he was going to help me be a smarter individual. And so I believe that I started to believe that. And when the victim starts to really press and say, you know, this doesn't seem right. Oh, you're crazy. You're too emotional. You don't really understand the situation. And again, this is said over and over and over to a point that the victim doesn't trust their own judgment. And they begin then to accept whatever the abuser is telling them is truth. And you put all of that together and it, it is a trap that the victim cannot seem to find a way out of. It's not that there isn't a way out. It's just victims no longer can see that way out. So once he's left the church and, and you've been kicked out of the church, how did you begin? You said you went silent. You just kept it to yourself. Did you do anything or get any support in recovery in the time after leaving the church? I did attempt to try to go to another church in, 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 the, in our town that was very popular. And I kind of knew the minister there. And when I went to him to, to see if I could get some counseling from him, he said to me, I know your story and you just need to call my secretary. He, he, he didn't want to deal with me. And I left the church and I, 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 I could never go back to another church and feel comfortable again. I did attend church because I wanted my kids to have that experience. And I wasn't at that point still understanding that I had been abused. I for 27 years saw this is that I had an affair with a married man who was the pastor of my church. So I continued for 27 years to blame myself, to feel guilt and to feel shame for something I had done. It wasn't until I had that trigger 27 years later that something inside of me rose up out of me to say, you were abused, you were hurt. This man took advantage of you. And it would take me another two years then to figure out how I was going to move forward and what I needed to do to heal. But for those 27 years, I didn't see myself as an abuse victim because that's what the church told me. They told me, you know, what you did was wrong and you need to leave this church. And, you know, even though I was 16 in my mind, okay, I knew right, wrong, right, wrong. What was right? What was wrong? I should have been able to say no, not understanding that when you you're, you've got someone in a position of power in a position of trust, someone who's a representative of God, I had no power. I had no control over the situation. And so for me, it took 27 years to come to the point that I understood that I was actually abused. I think that was a long answer to your question. I'm not sure I answered your question. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you, you, you answered the question basically by saying, if I can recap, that you internalized the shame. They told you you had done something wrong and that you kept that with you your whole life until... You know, what was the trigger? What happened? I was driving to one of my daughter's golf tournaments. She was in college and I was driving. I'm in, I live in Cincinnati and I was driving to her golf tournament in Tennessee. And I passed the exit sign to the town where he was moved to after our church. And when I saw that sign, I just felt his presence. I thought, this is where he lives. This is where he was. And I don't know if he's still here, but I felt like he was in the car with me. I could smell him. I could hear him. I could feel his hand on my leg. I pulled off the expressway because I, I thought I can't I can't get to the exit. I don't want to get to that exit. I just sat by the side of the road and sobbed for 20 minutes before I could. 
And at that point, again, I didn't know why I was feeling that way. I just knew that I was hurt and I was able to gather myself together. I went to the tournament for the weekend, again, suppressing the feelings because I got pretty good at that. For 27 years, I had triggers throughout the years and I had to suppress them and act as if nothing was wrong. I couldn't let anyone know what was going on on the inside of me because if they knew, then I, then I would have to tell why I was reacting the way I was and I didn't want my secret out. But this trigger really was telling me you can't suppress it. You're going to have to deal with it. And so for two weeks, I was in a, com I was a complete mess. I, I, I couldn't function. I, and my husband would leave for work and I would just break down and cry. Finally, I told uh, a best friend, I finally was able to get the words out. I, and I even remember saying, I think I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. I, at that point, I still couldn't say that I was because I'm, I wasn't sure. And it was through, she was a counselor. So I was able to, to, to really get some, support from her that was helpful. I told another friend and then I told my four best friends I told. I didn't tell my husband for almost six months. Again, because, you know, even though I knew he would be understanding and have nothing but concern for me, I couldn't risk his reaction being anything less than that. And I had seen the reaction of other people. I'd seen the reaction of the church. And I, I, I didn't want to risk that. I mean, I, I thought, is he going to see me less sexually? Is he going to wonder why I kept this secret from him, that I couldn't trust him? And all those fears were unfounded because when I told him he, he was, you know, nothing but loving and kind. Of course, he was very angry at this man. Um, he was concerned that I wanted to confront him. I think he was worried, you know, how that would be an emotional state for me. I think he was also concerned, and he was right, that if my expectations were that this man was going to fall out on his hands and knees and beg for forgiveness, that's not what was going to happen. Um, and, and in reality, that's exactly, you know, didn't happen. I mean, he didn't, um, his response was very cool. It was very calm. It was to simply say that he was sorry. But then he went on to explain why he was the way he was uh, and that he'd had an alcoholic father. And, you know, it was, it, he was, became the victim. He never could really articulate what he had done to me. I don't think he got it. He didn't get it. He didn't understand the spiritual damage that he had done. And I tried to explain that to him. And yet his response at the end was, I know I took away your teenage years. You know, yeah, going to the prom was not the same for me. And, and, and Friday night football games were not the same for me. But that's that wasn't the damage done to me. It was what he took from me spiritually. And I, I don't he he didn't he didn't get that part. He didn't get it. Well, there's there's a few like broader principles of trauma healing in what you're talking about. The first thing is that you can only heal these things when you feel safe enough in your life that something can come to the surface. So the fact that you could finally let it bubble up, that it was ready to be melted, was probably because you have this loving husband and this container of safety. So I just that's just a reminder to people who've been listening to the trauma podcast series that have been part of this. And then the other piece is I'm just curious about you having a daughter sort of at the age, if she's in a golf tournament, she's obviously a teenager in college or something, you having a daughter that age and whether there was some resonance there that was helping it ripen for you. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I remember when she turned 16, I looked at her and thought, oh my God, she's as young as I was and she's nothing but a kid. I was a kid, but I wasn't ready at that point to let it come out. So, but I do remember that was a, a moment for me that, that, did give me a moment of clarity of what was really done. When she got older, 
you know, people would say to me later on after I had told my story, weren't you afraid to send her to church? Or, you know, I'd send her on church retreats. Well, remember, I'm thinking I've had an affair with a married man and I got the only bad apple in the barrel. This doesn't happen to other people. I mean, I really believe that this never happened to other people, that this couldn't possibly be happening in other churches. And so I didn't have a fear for her because I thought she won't have this person, same person around her, and she won't respond the way I did. She's had a loving home. She doesn't have vulnerabilities that I had. So I, oddly enough, did not have a fear for her. Now, I have two granddaughters, and I will tell you, I am very vigilant with them and very much aware of their surroundings and watching the signs that I look for if there's ever anything that I think is inappropriate. So I'm so while I didn't have that same awareness with my daughter, I certainly have it with my granddaughters, knowing what I know now and understanding what abuse does and how it works. Yeah, it isolates you. I mean, this idea that you thought you were alone in your abuse, but then through the magic of the internet and all the other things you've been seeing over the last 30 years, maybe an increase in requests and stories and documentary films and of clergy abuse more broadly. And were you just shocked at how pervasive it is? I was. And, I, and, and I'm still shocked to this day. I, I don't know if you're aware, but um, there's been a report now out on the Southern Baptist where they have uncovered massive, massive cover-ups of pastors who have been conduct and been involved in sexual abuse with children and women in the Baptist church. It, this is, this is a, it's probably as big as the Catholic church issue. And it really sent me into a tailspin emotionally because it put me right back where I was when I confronted my abuser. It put me back at 16 when I tried to tell the truth and I was shut down. And it's still happening today. Churches are still trying to cover up. They're trying to protect their, re their reputation or they don't want this pastor to be exposed because they think he's this wonderful person who simply made a mistake. Church failure is epic and it they are failing in so many ways because they refuse to want to deal with it. They just don't want to have to face the truth because in facing the truth requires action. And they're not ready to do that yet. I love that you're pointing to the broader thing. I hadn't read the Southern Baptist report, but I know it's been bubbling. And then there's, of course, uh, the Catholic Church, which continues to try to do internal affairs style self-policing and then you get things up to the bishop level we're going to tell you know, and they and they just find them not guilty 15 counts of child sexual abuse not guilty and you know so it, it doesn't work unless there's a, a lay person counsel and it's not uh, judged by people who live in the area you don't have your cronies in there there's just all kinds of standard justice things that need to be done to brought, bring accountability in when I counsel victims, if they've not come forward, I, I tell them, you really probably really want to go to someone outside the church because the tendency is we, that we think the church is going to respond in the right way. Or these are the people we know and we and we think that they will respond in the way that we, they should. So our natural tendency is to go to someone in the church to confess, to say, here's what I has been happening to me and what this man has been doing to me. I, I really encourage them to find someone outside of the church to tell. Where are the women? Where's your mother? Where are the female members of the community in responding to these things? 
Me personally? Well, I mean, you personally, but that was a long time ago. But I mean, are there, for example, in the Southern Baptists or in the Church of Christ or the Mormons or whatever, aren't there women you can go to to tell your story and have it? Or, or are they part of the structure? Well, part part of the, they are part of the structure, and especially in, in, in the Baptist Church and evangelical women um, are not given a seat at the table, so to speak. They're not allowed to be pastors. They're not allowed, some, in many cases, to teach even adult men in Sunday school. So they are to, told to be submissive to men in many times, many ways. And so they are part of the culture that allows, I think, these men to continue in the ministry. Oddly enough, my abuser then went on to another church, and so I wrote this church a letter telling them who I was and why I was concerned that he was their pastor. The response I got was from two women and it was scathing. I was called evil. I was told that I was not doing this because I cared about their church. I was only trying to destroy this church. Uh, she ended the letter with something to the effect, I hope you're pleased with your evilness and you will never find happiness. Wow. And Whew. that was from two women uh, in the church. And, and that that entirety of the letter is in my book. And it and even to this day, when I read it, I think this just blows my mind. And, and the other thing about that is I at that point was strong enough in my journey of healing that I felt I could write this letter and, and whatever they were going to do, I was able to handle it. But think of someone who was more fragile and gets a letter from someone who's supposedly a Christian in a church telling them you're nothing but evil and you're only trying to hurt this person who hurt you. And he only made a mistake. I mean, that's the other thing she said. He's only made a mistake and God forgives people who make mistakes. You know, when a victim hears that, again, it's, it's putting the, the onus back on the victim. It's making the victim feel guilty for coming forward, being told, you know, you're going to be responsible if the church, these church doors have to shut because of what you're doing. Yeah. So they shut, then they shut, then they shut. Deal with your, deal with the consequences of your actions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The submissive to me piece feels like it's deeply part of that grooming. Yes. And, and, and I, that's the other thing I point out to many people. These men, sometimes women, they don't just groom the victim. They groom and manipulate the entire congregation because they need their tribe around them. They need to be put on a pedestal so that no one would ever dare question their behavior and no one would ever think that they were doing anything they shouldn't be doing. And so even if they're exposed, their tribe, their congregation surrounds them and supports them. And they have done a very good job of manipulating their congregation as well. I mean, wasn't it just Hillsong, which is another sort of Christian evangelical with the one with the big rock bands? Yes. Didn't their lead pastor just get outed also? I will tell you, if you Google just clergy sexual abuse or Southern Baptist or any, you know, the Catholic church, it doesn't matter what faith it is, you know, whether it's Jewish, Christianity, there are evil men, women in all of all denominations. I, I say the cover-ups are worse than the abuse in my mind because they're enablers. You know, I will tell you, my abuser came to our church. After he came to our church, another woman, a woman from his first church, came forward, accused him of sexual inappropriate behavior. He didn't deny it, cried some crocodile tears, said he was sorry, promised it would never happen again. My elders and the senior minister at the time said, we forgive you and we're going to allow you to remain as the youth pastor for this church 
and they gave no information to the congregation. And they allowed him to go back into that church. And within six months, he was kissing me in my hallway. When you give these men a second chance at ministry, you're giving them a second chance to reoffend. It's that simple. When an incident of sexual misconduct has been discovered, they are removed immediately. And we don't use terms like he made a mistake or it was a sin of the heart or he he was fallen. Our pastor has fallen. No, you use the word sexual misconduct and you use the word sexual abuse because that's what it is. When we try to sanitize it or sugarcoat it, the response then becomes inappropriate because we're not dealing with the reality of what has actually happened. Big breath. This clear accountability of the people, whether it's in your organization, your corporation who has people doing that, or you're in a church or anywhere else, there's a power dynamic, a school that happens with teachers, what happens in scouting, any place where that power dynamic is present and people have a sexual misconduct or a sexual abuse issue, no no tolerance. It's children. And and also and also this thing about um you have to heal your relationship to sexuality. Like you have to be able to love your body, love your sex, speak to your needs, speak to your desires, understand sovereignty, understand consent, all of the kinds of things that you're not taught when you're um, growing up in an environment that represses any conversation around sexuality. Right, exactly. And in my case, you know, I the other thing that I carried with through the rest of my 27 years was I didn't feel worthy. I never felt like I was worthy to have anything that good came to my life. I had two great kids, a great husband. I had a job as a nurse at Children's Hospital, but I always felt, you know, that I didn't deserve it. And I always felt that I was an imposter, that if people really knew who I was and what I had done, they would feel differently about me. And so for 27 years, I had to put on this face and pretend that I was someone that they wanted me to be because if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't like me anymore. Yeah, secrets. Yeah, it's secrets. The pain, the pain of holding secrets. The pain of holding secrets is like, uh, you know, if they if they really knew this about me, I, I would, you know, th- they'd see through me. It's that whole Cinderella complex too, right? But uh, that that is in in trauma healing work and collective trauma healing work. The very ability to tell the truth of your soul to someone else and have them meet you and accept you is the most healing thing that can happen. And I I tell people who, you know, they say to me, what should I say to a victim of, whether it's clergy abuse or any abuse? You know, I said, you just need to listen without judgment. You need to listen. And they're going to tell you horrific things maybe. And when you hear those things, you need to accept it. And in clergy abuse, the one thing that just is so important when you're dealing with someone with clergy abuse Things that people may find comforting, like prayer or quoting scripture, are not going to be comforting most times to someone who's been abused in the church. And so I tell them, please do not say to a victim of clergy abuse, I'll pray for you. That's that's going to do more harm than good. You need to be aware that those things that are comforting to you are triggers for a victim of clergy abuse. And I can't stress that enough because I recoil if someone will say to me, you know, well, the Bible says... Because that's what he told me. The Bible says that what I'm doing to you is okay. God, this is God's will. He told me we were married in God's eyes. And after five years, I actually gave him a wedding ring. 
because he kept saying to me, you need to prove to me that you believe we're married and prove to me that you're faithful to me. Because he always doubted I me. Mean, I think he was always afraid I would tell someone. So he was always looking for that loyalty factor from me. And he would constantly say to me, are you sure that you love me enough? And, and, and do you care enough for me? And I need to know that you believe that we are married in God's eyes. And I bought him a wedding ring. He wore it. He wore it when he preached on Sunday mornings. I'm, I'm, I'm dumbfounded by your personal story because of the level of intertwining and manipulation that's in there. And I also can't help but read it at this at this macro level. I mean, look, it's this this thing about isolating people, keeping them separate, manipulating them on the side, and then using the infrastructure of the collective of the potential of shunning to reinforce and keep them trapped. I have a friend who was uh, raised Jehovah's Witness, and he had a very abusive wife, and he left the, Je the Jehovah's Witnesses because he left her, and you were not allowed to divorce. And his entire family stopped talking to him, and he, and all of his business went dried up. And at in his like forties, he's totally isolated, and had to start over. So I would say, if there's one message I would give people, it's like you know what? There is life after church. There are so many wonderful people who want to meet you, who hold totally different beliefs. That's the faith you should have. That love is pervasive, and there's always the chance for connection. And any place that keeps you secret or trapped, any of that stuff, that's not real love. That's not the love that's professed by the underlying truth of all the major religions. That's the sort of manipulated story of belonging that keeps you in pain. Yeah, I, you know, I had one victim saying to me, "I don't believe in God anymore," Ooh. and I said. That's understandable because of what was, you know, I, I tell my story and then I hear someone else's story and I think, can this get any much, any worse? I mean, some of the stories that I hear from victims and what their perpetrators did to them, you know, I, throughout the book, I talk about some things very personal that he did, had done to me. And, you know, it took some courage to finally tell that truth. But I will tell you, I remember, and I don't, you know, I don't want to go into detail, but there was something I, he had asked me to do and, and, and I did it. And I just spent years feeling so ashamed of that. And I thought, can I write this in the book? And then I thought I need to write it. I need to say it because I don't have anything to be ashamed of. This man totally used me. He used me, he manipulated me and he controlled me with his words. He controlled me physically by hitting me. He, he told me what I could wear, how I was to dress. If he didn't like an outfit I was wearing, he told me to go home and change it. And so you, you get five years of this. You know, I was I was a shell of a person. There wasn't there wasn't anything left in me to fight. But when I began to tell my story, I did tell it in pieces because I was still afraid what someone would think. And I remember the first time I talked about this one particular incident, I I sobbed and I cried and my friends just they had nothing but concern for me, but, and I know it was a little shocking, but they accepted it because they understood I was abused and I had nothing to be ashamed of. And so you're right. When you tell your truth and you can free yourself of that truth, that's when you can heal. That's when the healing can begin. We've inherited so much body shame and sexual shame as women. It's one of the reasons that I do the show. Um, I feel like the piece, I haven't really spoken to religious recovery but there's a, you know, I am getting a PhD in religion and consciousness, which uh, qualifies me to a certain extent to look at this question. And and one of the 
you know, there are a lot of places of body denial, sexual denial, which even tied to like eco-denial, denial of the earth as important, denial of certain aspects of social justice as important. Somehow there's a story that's evolved that as long as you're saving souls for the afterlife, nothing else really matters. Like if he's recruiting people and saving souls for the afterlife, okay, so a few women, on a few girls on the side, or a few boys on the side get caught in the thing, but he's saving souls for the here and eternity. That thinking has led to the turning away from so many embodied challenges of, of that we have in the planet right now. So I feel like the, the body and sexual shame is one of them. I'm really loving your conversation. I want to make sure that we leave space, not just, you know, to, to talk about, you know, everybody go get the book, which I can put in the notes, but I want to make sure we talk about the religious recovery movement, where people who have been victims can go, um, the first steps people can take. A lot of the women in my community are 35 and over, 45 and over. I think I have listeners as old as 85. And so they're, they're coming from a lot of different eras of in terms of what they learned was the right relationship between a woman, her body, sexuality, spirituality, the church. Um, where do they go for help? You're asking me where they can go for help? Yeah, where or how? How do you begin the process of examining the relationship of religion and sexuality or religion and body shame, abusive, direct abuse, or even sort of implicit abuse that comes from just being raised in those practices? Well, the first thing I did was I, I Googled everything I could on abuse and, and clergy abuse and read everything that I could. Um, in the back of my book, there's a bibliography um, that I think there's a lot of excellent books that I found to be very helpful. You know, there aren't a lot of places that I think speak to sexual abuse in a, in, the, in the church setting. They're just, I did attend a group, um, support group called SNAP, which is the, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's the um, Survivors Network Against Abusive Priests, even though I wasn't Catholic. Um, they accepted me into the group and my joke was always I was their token Protestant. But I, I think if you can find a support group with, and there are some on the internet that could be helpful, but the SNAP was very helpful to me. And there's those those chapters are all over the country. And even though it if it may not be in the Catholic faith, they're very accepting of all faiths. In fact, they've been very active in the Southern Baptist, exposing the Southern Baptist sex scandal. And it's huge. Again, I cannot stress enough people should really delve into that and see what's going on there. They they have over 700 men they put on a list that they kept hidden um, after they were aware that they had committed sexual abuse. And I, you know, and let me just say this before we end. For victims out there, the one thing I try to, to, to enforce over and over and over again is this was done to you. It didn't just happen. You were targeted. You were targeted and what ever happened to you and was done to you, it's not your fault. It is absolutely not your fault. You did what you could in the, at the moment with the coping skills that you had at that time. I, I looked back and thought, well, maybe I should have done this or could. No, I did what I could with who I was at that time and with the coping skills that I had and the tools that I had to be able to respond to this man. And, and when sex abuse happens within the church, you had every right to believe that the church was a safe place and that the man in the front of that pulpit was to be trusted. And he broke those vows of his ordination. He broke the trust and he has no business being in the church. And so I tell victims you, and I, I still would spend time thinking, okay, maybe I could have done something else. 
It's not your fault in any shape or form. It's not your fault. And and that's the first step of letting go of that blame and that shame is to, to, to accept that. And then I, I encourage victims to educate you, educate yourself, you know, learn the terms grooming, manipulation and gaslighting, because once you see that, you're able then to accept the fact that, yes, you were used by someone and that you didn't have any control over the situation because of what they were doing to you. And then if you haven't ever told anyone, tell someone. And I, I say that from someone who kept a secret for 27 years. So I know how hard it is to say those words. I was sexually abused. There's a, so much to unpack. And I, I you know, it's, it's, I feel like I jump from topic to topic sometimes. No, you, you, you really stayed on a, a critical topic. And I love that you brought it back around at the end to these are something was done to you. You didn't do anything wrong. Here are the things you should learn about. Begin to tell your truth. And I would say that depending on the nomination, I mean, there's exmormonism.org, you know, Google recovery from blank, recovery from Southern Baptist even, and you're going to find a lot of denomination specific support, which may or may not be sexual. I think the sexual abuse piece, like you're saying with SNAP, is probably uh, you could probably address this by in, in two different ways, like the overall abuse of churches and then the very personal sexual abuse that follows you through your whole life impacts how you are in your marriage, impacts how you are sexually, what kind of parent you are, and also your ongoing relationship with spirit, you know? So very unique. Um, thank you so much for telling your story. I really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I I, I really believe our stories are powerful and that we can connect with each other. And my story may resonate with someone and someone else's story may have a different view and resonate with that individual. And so we need to tell our stories. We need to share them with each other. And I'm just grateful and thankful that I have the voice to be able to do that and the support around me um, because it's not easy for victims to speak about their abuse. And you said that you were doing um, counseling. Are you, is that part of your professional work now? I do that and I, I, I say that I am not a counselor when I talk to victims. So I do share my story with victims. I have victims that will reach out to me and we talk and I make it clear I'm not a counselor, but we share uh, information, we share stories, we share our experiences. I talk about what has helped me um, and how they can move forward in a way that helps them. And I always suggest counseling and to get help from a professional. It's tough to do this alone. It's really hard to, to, to navigate the trauma that you've experienced without some professional help. Get the book if you want more of her story, Let Me Pray Upon You, Sandy Phillips Kirkham. And if this is happening in your world, please know you're not alone and reach out to someone, uh, even if that someone is an anonymous support line on the internet. You are perfect, whole, and complete from the day you were born until this moment, and anything that has been laid upon you as less than perfect, whole, and complete is an adaptation that you do not have to carry the rest of your life to more love and total liberation from these limiting beliefs and to justice for you and for anyone who has suffered at the hand of an abuser, particularly if that abuser was clergy or someone standing in a role of power. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sandy, for telling your story. It's only in telling stories that we start to see patterns, that we can identify the textbook ways that people try to oppress others to get their own needs met. And 
it's doubly painful when it's coming from a spiritual place where you also feel you've had a home or a community. If you are suffering uh, something like this, know you're not alone. Go out and Google clergy sexual abuse or uh, clergy abuse or recovery from religious trauma, and you'll find a lot of resources and people that you can talk to. It is my hope that we can retain our beautiful connection to the transcendent spirits that fill the world with life, this beautiful web of life of which we're a part, and that we feel our unity and not our separation. Uh, So we bring our awareness to stories of separation so that we can, yes, bear witness and yes, hold the truth. And from that place, know that we are empowered to act and bring light on something. If we don't look at it, there's no place to start from to make change. So for me, these stories are sometimes shocking, but they're also deeply like, wow, this is what's real. And by looking at what's real, I can help, or I hope I can help. So at the end of these episodes, I have an extra request for you. And that is to stand up, shake your whole body like you're a dog that just got out of the pool or out of the river, shake everything, brush off any energetic residue, take some really deep breaths, and then maybe go out into a closet or somewhere where you can uh, yell without, you know, being bothersome to people around you and just like let loose a big vocalization. Get whatever is stuck from hearing this that didn't go through you, get it into space, like get it out of your body. And use that new, energized, cleared out, uplifted sense of the power of being in your body as fuel for making change. Okay, Uh, you can find me at the.rose.woman or at rosebudwoman. You can write to me, christine at rosewoman.com. I am here for you. I know this is a hard topic. If you want to do more work in uh, connective or collective trauma healing, I have programs coming up on that this summer and this fall. If you are in Western Massachusetts in mid-August, we're going to do a big event, Your Body, This Earth, um, in Lee at a big farm. And then I have a huge event coming up in New York City in September, a five-day event called Sensing Woman, which if you follow me on socials, you can find out more about. Thank you. Have a wonderful day, whatever you're doing.